It's time for the Rose Chat Podcast, a podcast dedicated to celebrating the world's most beloved flower, the rose. Join award-winning gardeners Chris Van Cleef and Teresa Byington as they chat with rose lovers and experts from around the globe. With each episode, you'll gain valuable knowledge and insights to achieve the rose garden you've always dreamed of. Listen now as we explore the world of roses. Hey, Rose friends. Welcome to the first Rose Chat of 2024. Winter is almost over. Spring is coming, and I'm excited for another year to chat about all things rose. Now, today, a great friend to all rose lovers, Gay Hammond, is here. And Gay is here to share the fascinating journey of roses in the United States from antiquity to the 1900s. I'm telling you, prepare to be amazed. Hey, Gay, welcome back to Rose Chat. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, my goodness. Now, I understand down there in Texas, Suzanne Gilbert let me know that the alligator ate his chicken. So that means early spring in your neck of the woods. Am I right? Well, I don't know about the alligator and the chicken, (laughs) but but the news says that we are going to have an early spring. Well, Suzanne says, and I went and looked it up. She sent me a link and down there somewhere where she lives in Texas. That alligator ate his chicken, and they think that's more important than Phil the Groundhog. So (laughs) Now, Phil the Groundhog sounds kind of tame now, although I don't think of them as tame because I think I told you groundhogs worked very hard to destroy my garden last year. But enough of that, enough of that. Let's talk about roses. Um, So how did you decide to go on such a deep dive into the U.S. roses? Well, I have one of those those uh, outlooks that's always asking questions. And I know that I made my parents crazy because <laughs> I always asked the why question over and over and over. And a number of years ago, I attended a lecture uh, with a very learned professor who'd spent his life working with roses. And he made quite an offhand statement. It takes a rose to make a rose. And my why question quick kicked in. And so when it got time that we could ask questions, I said, sir, if it takes a rose to make a rose, what was first rose? Because I intended to go out and buy it. (laughs) And if looks could have killed, I'd be dead right now. Um, And he said, I don't know, but that's a good thing for you to try and figure out. And so I spent a number of years tracing back the history of roses in the United States. And I'm happy to share parts of that journey with you. Oh, I am so excited for this. Uh, Our listeners are going to love this so much. So let's go all the way back to the prehistoric roses. What have you got for us? Well, uh, it is one of two of the most ancient flowers. And that would, that the two most ancient flowers are roses and the lotus. Um, We know, as far as the rose goes, that it's found in a number of countries like Germany, Bulgaria, China, Japan, Yugoslavia, and the Balkan Islands. Those are the main places where roses have been found worldwide. But amazingly, the largest and greatest collection of rose fossils are found in the United States. And those have been found in Alaska, California, Oregon, Colorado, Montana, 
And all of the ones that have been found in the United States date back before man's existence. So I tell people, I like to tell people that the rose is as native to America as the bald eagle. My goodness. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, I think more people have heard about things that went on in Colorado than any other place. At least I had a teeny bit of information. So let's talk about the ones found in Colorado. Well, the ones found in Colorado were found in a place called Florissant. And that is very near the Pikes Peak area, which we're pretty much all familiar with where that is. Mm -hmm. That the the rose fossil beds in Florissant are the worldwide are the most famous of all fossil finds. Uh, those deposits of fossils uh, were created a little bit more than thirty four million years ago as a result of numerous volcanic eruptions. In that fossil location, there are a hundred and forty different species of plants hundreds of thousands of specimens, including 27 different specimens of roses. Uh, Now, how do we know about them? Because this was the fascinating part to me. Um, There was a lady named Charlotte Hill, and she was married to a farmer named Adam Hill. And they moved from the East Coast to Florissant, Uh, on a ranch that they had purchased in the Pikes Peak area. And I laugh because my husband would say they got it dirt cheap because it was all rock. (laughs) And, And what she noticed in helping clear that land for their farm was that these rocks had impressions on them. Plants, insects, butterflies, fish, bugs. And she just started collecting them to the point that uh, at some point in time in her farmhouse, she had boxes containing thousands of uh, fossil specimens. Uh, They sat there and she would she would entertain her guests by showing her her most showing them her (laughs) most current uh, collections of rocks that she found. Until one day, the American geologist Leo Lescrave uh, was doing an expedition on behalf of the U.S. Department of Geology through that area looking for gold, and he happened upon their uh, ranch. And uh, Mrs. Hill took great pleasure in sharing all these boxes of fossils with her guests. And so impressed they were that they got her to turn loose of some of these boxes of specimens. (laughs) And in one of those boxes was the best preserved evidence of a rose fossil that has ever been found. And for doing, giving that gift uh, of fossils to the U.S. expedition, uh, Les named one of those fossils Rosa Hillier. So mm-hmm. Rose Hill or Rose mm-hmm. Hillier. And that is the name of the first fossil spe- specimen that the U.S. has in their possession. And it is 
still on display at the Smithsonian Institute. Um, the Hill Ranch is also now the site of the fluorescent fossil beds because more fossils have been found on their land than anywhere else in the oh. United States. How, how fascinating. I was very excited to learn more about Charlotte. And when I looked her up, she's actually from Indiana originally. So we, I felt a kinship to her. <laughs> she is. I love it. I love it. Well, you sent me a picture of the fossil and it's just so fascinating. And friends, I'll add it to our show page um, and you can look it up on Google as well. I mean, it's just so fun to see. And it, and it's the only one out there that that I have found in the Smithsonian that has the leaves, the stem, and the hips, mm-hmm. and the thorns. So so it's it's pretty clear that that's what it is. Oh my goodness! So that leads me to these early roses were called species roses, right? That's true. They are called species, and and some. Today, we would call them wild roses, but not every rose that we find growing in the wild or along the road somewhere is a species. Species means naturally occurring, and it is usually a plant specimen from antiquity. Mm-hmm. And what do we know about these species roses? They obviously are easy to grow. They would be sustainable in our well, culture they're, they're, today. They're, they're tough as tough as nails, let me tell you. Uh, and they have to be. You stop and think about it. Species roses and dinosaurs lived at the same time. Oh, and dinosaurs don't live no more. So, so the rose is tougher than a dinosaur as far as its ability to survive. Now, they're there, but we can't say with any degree of certainty that the species roses that are contained within these fossil specimens are exactly the same species rose that exists today. But what we do know is species roses that exist today have similar characteristics as species roses that are preserved in fossils that were found in the same area. So they might not be identical. For instance, Rosa Blanda from antiquity may not be Rosa Blanda today, but they share enough of the same characteristics that it appears that they are related, if that makes sense. And when I I ask uh, Professor Herbert Meyer, uh, who has done a whole lot of work in the fluorescent area, I said, well, why don't you know? And he I'm sure he looked at me with one of those. I wish that you didn't ask me that question. Uh, He said, well, Gay, how do you identify a rose? What do you have to look at to know whether this rose is that rose? Well, you have to look at the flower and you have to look at the bloom color. Mm -hmm. And because these fossils are the result of what's left after a volcanic eruption, the fragile parts of the, of the plant, the flowers, petals are gone because they shattered with, with the event. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have the fossil color and the, the, the flower color, Mm -hmm. and we don't have the flower head form. Although there are some buds 
in fossils, but by the time the mud compacted on them and it turned to rock, it's just a mess um, in, in the fossil. We can't say for sure Rosa Blanda from history is Rosa Blanda from today. But they did pick out the <clears throat> they did pick out the prickles and yes. they did pick out the forms of the the hips, the fruit of the rose. Yes. So that's really special. And and the and the uh, shape and habit of the leaves, and it, it there are one or two specimens of rose uh, pollen out there as well. So, so for sure they're there, uh, and 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 that's the great thing is that they lasted all this long periods of time and millions of years without the benefit of chemical sprays or treatments. <laughs> oh my goodness! How how in the world? How in the world? Well, I'm thinking we're out west. So, what about the Native Americans and their rose story? Well, roses played a tremendous part in the lives of the first peoples. Um, they considered the rose to be a symbol of life. Uh, there are some some rather interesting references to roses. Uh, Captain John Smith in the Pocahontas story wrote that the Indians that lived along the James River Valley in Virginia would plant roses to beautify their camps. But in reality, it was probably, they probably did that for the edible, uh, medicinal, and other uses of the rose plant that were important to their everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, from the medicinal standpoint, you know, they didn't have a Walgreens on the corner. And so they would use things like rose petals and they would mix those with bear grease and lay them on mouth ulcers to dull the pain. They would take dried rose petals that they dried just like they dried meats and fishes. And they would use those dried petals to to treat uh, blisters and sores. And think about people that are running through brambles, briars, Mm -hmm. The prairie and they have on thin moccasins they probably needed that mm-hmm. uh, they would take fresh petals and soak those in water and use those to bathe their eyes because back in those days ray-bans didn't exist either mm-hmm. and uh, then they would take the inside bark of the rose roots and make a poultice out of that and apply it to boils uh standpoint, um, they would take the young shoots of the plant uh, and eat those. They have a rather nutty taste, so it's kind of like salad. Uh, And they would take the hips or the fruit of the plant and either eat those fresh or dried, uh, somewhat like they treat them like they were berries. Now, there are some references in the Indian history that indicate that the Indians thought that uh, rose hips were called survival food. We eat that when there's nothing else to eat. And along those lines, their survival, winter survival food was called pemmican. And it was basically a way to take um, dried fruit or dried vegetables and mix it with 
uh, grease or lard, and they would pack it in leather pouches, and then it would be preserved. And so for protein, they would take a scoop of that and eat that uh, as a food when other types of protein were not necessarily available. But then from the plant standpoint, they would take the long canes of the rose bush and they would use those straight canes to make arrows mm -hmm. and they would use them to make pipe stems because they're hollow down the center and they could hollow them out and, and use them in their pipes. They would wear them in their hair and the children, there's a great story about the children would take the seeds from the roses, which are kind of hairy, and they would dry them, and then they would make an itching powder. And I've done that, and it does it. <laughs> so, so the the they would get, they would, they would, they would treat their their people, their bullying friends, to a, oh. a treatment of rose powder. <laughs> I can't get over the branches that were used to make arrows. Those thorny, thorny branches would add insult to injury. I'm sure. Well, I'm sure they cut the. Sure, they cut the thorns off, but the I fact that know. they were straight and they were lightweight. <laughs> oh. oh my goodness! Yeah, great stories. And who doesn't love a beautiful flower crown? You know, right? So, you're right. Oh, you're yeah, right. Adds adds spice to your life. Uh, absolutely. Oh, that's quite a list. And I know that there's some um, very interesting Indian legends around roses. So share a few of those with us. Well, there is a. Uh, uh, a legend among the Sioux tribe about what they call the prairie rose. And if you look that up, there's 15 different varieties of the prairie rose. So we're not sure exactly which one it was. But the, the trouble that the Sioux had was that tornadoes would come across their land and tear everything up. And so they noticed that in, or they presume in places where the prairie rose was growing, it didn't have tornadoes quite as much. And they attributed that fact to that the wind demon, which was the god of tornadoes, didn't want to mess up the land that was, that was housing the sweet-smelling pink prairie rose. And so the wind demon would go someplace else. And so that led them to plant prairie roses or move their their camps to areas where there were prairie roses thinking that would protect them from tornadoes that were known to come through uh, that part of the country and then there's there's one about that from the salto tribe that explains why roses have thorns which i found this very interesting because they attribute it to a medicine man who knew a lot about plants and the medicine man was out on a hunt and he had planted around his teepee, these uh, beautiful roses, but they didn't have thorns. And so when he came back from his hunt, the, the rose bushes had been eaten almost to the ground by either deer or rabbits. And he was so distraught that he put a curse on the rose bushes and gave them thorns so that the plants could protect it themselves from being eaten by scavenging wildlife. And so his, the medicine man's name was 
Nana Hubuzu, and I can just see him <laughs> doing some kind of ceremonial rite that gave supposed thornless roses thorns so that the rabbits wouldn't heat his plants anymore. But you, you know that a plant must have made an impression yes. on hundreds of different types of people in that there are so many of these legends out there that all center around how roses affected life or food or sustenance in some way that that plant must be important. Well, you know, just in general, in life and through the years, I've just noticed that even people who are non-gardeners Everyone knows what a rose is. You know, they may not know what um, a larkspur is, or they may not know what a zinnia is, but everyone knows what a rose is. It's just phenomenal. Yep. Okay, let's head to the early explorers and the roses. Well, there are a number of references, and and this, this part of it was, of my research project was, took a long time. Uh, I've been able to track since the 1400s references to the early explorers and roses and and their impressions. Because back, you know, from the 1400s to the 1800s, people wrote everything down. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to me, things that I look and read today that somebody thought to write that down and um, mm-hmm. share that with you. Uh, probably the most famous of all these references it deals with Christopher Columbus. And, and the question is to whether if he had not found uh, a branch of what is presumed to be Rosa Canina floating in the ocean, America probably would have never been found. Uh, But he wrote in his journal, we saw a little branch of dog roses. It's hard to estimate the significance of this fragment of wild plant to the senses of men having been so long upon a sea that they they thought they would never land alive. He thought to write that down. Civilization, the sweet significance of this fragment. Civilization. just, it's just amazing. Uh, from 1492, the early pilgrims, the governor of the Plymouth Colony, uh, wrote in, in his journals that <laughs> from in 1602, we saw a disinhabited island. So we saw a vacant island and we called it Martha's Vineyard. Now, I thought the Kennedy family named Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> So when I found that, I was kind of shocked. He says, we went ashore and found it full of woods, vines, gooseberry bushes, and eglantines. Well, eglantine is a species rose from Europe. And so his stepping on this vacant island, and he writes, he found roses. Mm-hmm. It was important enough to write about. My son lives in New England. I can't wait to chat with him about this. <laughs> Then in the, in the late 1640, almost 1640, we have a, an English explorer, John Joslin, who is traveling across from east to west, writing about what he saw. 
in the landscape. And he writes that he saw pleasant flowers, hollyhock, English roses. Now, those were not the David Austin roses. <laughs> uh, and eglantines. And he writes hedges and hedges of eglantines. Uh, 200 years later, John Fremont, who led a uh, expedition through the West, similar recording. Everywhere the roses met and reminds us of cultivated gardens and civilization in Europe. Uh, and he says the rose is the most beautiful of all of the prairie flowers. So for 400 years, explorers are recording in records we can read today mm-hmm. about finding uh, roses where they went in places that one would not think those plants existed with the understanding we or the misbelief that we have today that roses are hard to grow. Clearly, they're not hard to grow. Well, and it's also, yep, yep. It's also so neat to me of of the way they pinned the words. You know, it's like the good captain um, had a poet's heart and a love for roses because it was special. And I wanted to go back a minute and speak to the John Jocelyn quote because he was an Englishman. And I've done some research on the English cottage gardens, and it seems that Eglantine roses, which were also called sweet briars, were in just about every cottage garden. And now they did use them medicinally and all of those things. But one of the things I found out that their high value for the rose was also for fencing. They were very thorny and the canes made quite a barrier between them and those that would do them evil. So whether it be man or beast. And so when we know whenever people moved, they took their plants with them. So they got moved around. They, they did. And, and clearly they got moved around around the world. Mm-hmm. They sure did. So now we're going to go into the era where they start getting names. So tell us about that. Well, you know, this, the whole point of this research was for me to find out what the first rose was. <laughs> and and about a year and a half into it, I learned that, well, we will never really know the answer to that because roses didn't have names before the 1700s. Uh, people that found them would either call them a name that they were used to seeing like Eglantine in Europe. Mm-hmm. Or they would give them a, a name that was descriptive of where they were found. For instance, the woods rose or the prairie rose or the pasture rose or the wild rose or the red rose. Uh, but no botanical name that you could take down to the local plant nursery and say, can I get this? And so it wasn't until the 1700s and the work of Carl Linnaeus, who is the father of botany, that Linnaeus decided, wait a minute, we need to give plants botanical names so they can be be distinguished from one another. And so before the 1700s, you just had descriptive names and not actual botanical names that we know plants by today. Mm-hmm. I bet there were lots and lots and lots of prairie roses. Oh, like 18. <laughs> and, and, and some roses that are, some of the species roses, have up to 20 different names because Mm -hmm. that species rose was 
in lots of places and wherever it was, the people local to the place would give it a descriptive name. And so, for instance, um, I think it's Rosa Blanda is the one with all the names, but you can just read the list of all the names that it's been called depending on the regions of the country where it was grown. That makes me think of the Barbara Pasture Rose. Um, <laughs> that is one of my favorite stories anyway. I think she was dressed up and in hills and when she went to the pasture to pick the rose. So, <laughs> yep. and then, and then, and I'm so glad that she did because the next year she went down the same road and that pasture had been plowed. Oh. So we got a beautiful rose, the Barbara Pasture Rose. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, botanical names, um, even botanical names can get confusing. Um, just ask a gardener who's trying to decide if she has a geranium or a pelagorium. <laughs> roses, roses fall into that same issue. <laughs> yeah, it gets a little confusing, but the intent is good and we have a lot more information for sure. So how many U.S. roses are there? Well, uh that is open to discussion and it has been a discussion that has been going on for almost 500 years. Uh, science agrees that Rosa is the hardest of all plant groups to identify because there are some species that are so similar that they could be independent species or they could be mutations of the same species. So there's a lots of disagreement. Uh, the numbers run anywhere from 14, which is what Linnaeus opined was the number for the U.S., all the way to 4,266, which is clearly, we don't have that many rose bushes. <laughs> but there were two great scientists, um, Francois Crapin and Serena Watson, who spent their life trying to answer what they call the species problem in the United States. And they agreed that nine roses were likely the natives to the United States. Their co-workers said, no, it's probably closer to 30. But even the co-workers agreed that there are 10 that are found nowhere else but the United States. Mm -hmm. So somewhere around 9, 10, maybe 13, 14 uh, is the number that were native to America and nowhere else. Okay, it's that nowhere else. You know, that's where I'm landing. Because if it takes a rose to make a rose, how did it get in the U.S.? Well, that was my next question. <laughs> Okay, if there's not a first one, how did it get here? Well, <clears throat> that was a recent uh, development in this research project. Uh, many, 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 many eons ago in the Ice Age, there was a land bridge between Asia and Alaska, and it was called the Bering Land Bridge. And Science agrees that there were travel between Asia to the North American continent through that land bridge until through volcanic eruptions or other types of natural disasters, 
that land bridge separated and water took its place. So it's thought that the ability of plants to enter into North America happened with people traveling from mm -hmm. Asia to the United States because there are many of these American species roses that are also found in Asia. Mm -hmm. Well, that plays into a story of something that happened to me and Greg one time. We were traveling in Tennessee and we saw a sign that made us very interested. So we made an impromptu stop in the middle of Tennessee to see a little museum that was built around an active prehistoric archaeological dig. And at that time, their claim to fame was having found evidence. And they had lots of fossils. They had found, this was, this was pretty big. But they had evidence of a red panda, which until this find was known to be native only to Burma and China. And here this cute little thing is in Middle Tennessee. Yep. And, and it, it, is, it is believed that roses had a, had a similar travel mm -hmm. from another continent into the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk about the early settlers and, and how they play into the Rose's story. Well, think about this, because I thought this was very humorous and I could only, I wish I could have seen his face. William Penn, who was the governor of Pennsylvania, uh, funded an expedition in the late 1600s uh, back from Europe to the United States. And he wrote that he brought 18 rose bushes because he wanted to plant them into uh, Pennsylvania when he arrived back into the United States. Only to find <laughs> when he got there, there were the, the pilgrims and the colonists already had gardens filled with roses because <laughs> Back in those days to immigrate from Europe into the United States, there was a mandatory list of things you had to bring. You had to bring certain uh, bolts of, of denim. You had to bring certain pots and pans. You had to bring potato slips. You had to bring uh, nails. You, had to, you couldn't get on the ship without enough survival material for every person in your group. And so people just didn't, you know, buy another steamer trunk and put, you know, their personal possessions in it because there was so many things that they had to bring and they were limited to how much they could bring. So having luxuries like a rose was, it just didn't happen. And so you look back and say, well, how did they get them here? Well, the way they got them here was pretty ingenious. They would take those potatoes that they had to bring yes. any, anyway, and they would cut a slit in the potato and they would stick a cutting for the rose. And then they killed two birds with one stone because they had the rose that they were rooting on the way over stuck <laughs> in a potato. And there are people today that even still do that. They root their rose cuttings inside of a potato. Don't you just love rose people? And, and, and early, the earliest of, of the, I call it the immigrants gone native, 
example is from Samuel D. Champlain in 1611. He writes that he was coming into the United States, and he's clearly coming from a northern route uh, into North America through Canada. And he says, on October 16th, we arrived at Quebec, where I had repairs made to the ship and some rose bushes set out. <laughs> Who would care that he put out some plants in the middle of nowhere? But he, he thought did. that that was so important that he that he let the world know in his historical record that he was setting out rose bushes along the way. And we assume that the rose he put out is now called the Hudson Bay Rose. My goodness, don't you just love this? It's just the best, just the best. Kindred it, spirits all. It, it is. You know, people, it isn't just today that people love roses. Clearly, people in all the way back to the to the 14, 1500s loved roses. And that love has never waned. So I think it's just fantastic. It's just a fantastic example of how a plant has impacted human life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. My goodness. Well, if, if they were damask roses, you know, they weren't about to leave that scent behind. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And some of them, some of the names of these immigrants gone wild roses that would be recognizable to folks is uh, the Cherokee rose. Uh, it, its hips look like a huge cuckleburr, mm. uh, or the McCartney rose, or Rosa multiflora that's used so much in uh, uh, rose, uh, the, the rose industry as a rootstock, or the dog rose, which is what Columbus found. Uh, those are all examples of the immigrants gone wild uh, theory where they're not native to America, they're native to Asia, but, but they got here. And they got here earlier than William Penn. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go. Way to go, Rose. Oh, my goodness. So, Gay, what are your thoughts on these ancient roses and their relevance today? Well, you know, I've been growing roses for probably 30, 40 years. And there was a time when no one gave species roses a second thought. They were old, so why do we want them? Well, that theory or that mindset has changed because they have absolutely become invaluable in the quest for rose breeders to come up with roses that are hardy and can survive without being dependent on uh, chemical treatments, uh, and some roses, some of the species roses are even showing or evidencing resistance to the dreaded rose rosette disease. And so not all species roses uh, have seem to have that ability, but there are a handful that do. And so from that aspect, using a rose from antiquity to assist modern science to overcome or transfer whatever genetics is there in that ancient rose, making it resistant to rose rosette, the ability to bring that into modern rose breeding will be tremendously important. 
And I have I have one of the roses that has been used in that regard in my garden, not because I have rose rosette, but to see how it does as a um, modern rose. And it's mm-hmm. a it's a hybrid of roses satigera, uh, which is in the United States one of the largest flowering species roses that we have. But in my garden. It's a beautiful pink and white bicolor rose. Mm. And and it grows like it's like it's a forefathers. Just leave me alone and give me a lot of room. <laughs> <laughs> Don't fuss with me. Well, you know, that is just what, such wonderful news. You know, we could probably do an entire chat on this subject about, you know, the good that we're finding from something so ancient. So it makes me wonder how how are the natives doing? You know, we know the one in your garden is, is doing well, but I know that there's a lot of houses being built and there's lots of things changing in our world. So how are the native species doing? Well, for the most part, the, the, the ones that were native to the U.S., all but two uh, seem to be doing okay. There are two that are on the cusp of becoming extinct. One is only found in uh, Baja, Mexico and Ensenada, California. And the there is an, the only Arctic species rose uh, is also on that list of roses that could become extinct simply because of where it grows. And it is a very tiny, tiny little rose. Uh, but, but, you know, Outside those two, which are only found in the places where they're growing right now, um, they seem to be holding their own. And with the move for folks that want to have roses, if they live in an area where there is rose rosette, to have uh, rose varieties that are not susceptible to that, uh, we're seeing a lot of mail order traffic in Mm -hmm. the species roses. That's wonderful. That's so good. So good. So many people that are passionate and about roses and they care about them. And and I'm glad that people are are, um, taking that opportunity. So Gay, we're coming to the close of all of this. My goodness, my head is just uh, brimming with information. So if, if, if I want to know more, where would you send me? Well, I, the, um, there is a fantastic book. Uh, and it's called Rosa, the Story of the Rose. And it was re- it's written by my friend Peter Kukelski. Mm-hmm. And that is probably the best uh, example of how roses have impacted mankind all the way back from antiquity, because I've told him the story of the fossils, uh, all the way up to today's modern time uh, and it, it, through art, through culture, through food, through music, through it, religious rites. It, it's a fantastic read. And so if anybody that's interested in history, uh, this is not a coffee table book. It is a book of educational information and great photos and I encourage anyone that is interested to avail themselves of that book because it in my opinion it's the best right on the subject of the history of this plant that there is. 
My goodness. Well, Peter always does such quality, quality work. So thank you for telling us all about that. Gay, I just can't thank you enough. You always dig deeper and you're just willing to do the hard work and the research and you just bring us so much incredible information. Thank you. You're so welcome. It, it's my pleasure. And uh, I hope to uh, speak to your listeners again soon. Uh, we would love to have you back. I think we need to talk about maybe next time we'll talk about rose trials, what we put oh. these roses through before they get to the backyard. Great idea. I'd love to do that. We do appreciate you so much, Gay. And friends, we're so glad you tuned in today. On the next Rose Chat, we'll be talking about beneficial insects. It's uh, something I certainly want to know more about. So I hope you'll turn tune in for that. And until next time, friends, happy gardening. You've been listening to the Rose Chat Podcast with Chris Van Cleve and Teresa Byington, expert rose gardeners who want to help you achieve the rose garden of your dreams. Don't miss an episode. Listen anytime on our website at rosechatpodcast.com or listen on the go via the Rose Chat app on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Share this podcast with your social networks and join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using the hashtag rosechat. Join us next time for another edition of the Rose Chat Podcast. The Rose Chat Podcast is a production of the Rose Chat Media Group, Birmingham, Alabama.